morning I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, alleviating feelings of or states of shame, guilt, and on the other hand, resentment. And uh, what these have in common, <clears throat> of course, is that uh, these states of mind keep us feeling disconnected, isolated, separated from others. It undermines our uh, conviction that we can uh, emotionally, vulnerably connect with the people around us. It keeps us stuck in states of uh, victim relationships with the world. And, um, of course, finally, well, I shouldn't say of course, but they're thematically linked as well because the processes of alleviating both shame and resentment are inextricably linked in Buddhist practice. In fact, the same... Uh, meditation that's used to alleviate one can also alleviate the other. So, um, starting out with feelings of shame and guilt, uh, these socializing emotions and perspectives are uh, deeply embedded in cultures and uh, if you look back at our ancestors we can even see the survival role that shame and guilt would have played in that um, there was of course a time when we were competing intensely for scarce resources and those that worked well together would have survived, would have bonded into small collectives which would have ensured their survival. And so over the course of the 200,000 years of uh, the human experiment, there would have been uh, a development of socializing emotions geared to uh, punish us when we acted in ways that harmed the people around us, that harmed the collective or the tribes that we belong to. Pride would have developed as a reward for socially positive actions. And of course, given how important connection and the social mind is, uh, these emotions are uh, extremely strong. There's a book called Social by a neuropsychologist named Matthew Lieberman, and he shows in his uh, research that the same parts of the brain that uh, create feelings of physical pain are allocated for 
feelings of shame and guilt. They literally use the right cingulate and uh, other areas of the striatum and insula to create feelings of emotional distress. It's that important that we feel connected. For many, uh, though, even though there's a survival implication of shame, for many of us, uh, shame is far too strong or present an element in our psychological makeup. There's a lot of sociocultural reasons behind this. Um, there are family systems of shame where families use guilting and shame to control children. It's a very easy tool for overly taxed caretakers, parents, to control their children by suggesting that their children are acting in harmful or selfish or uncaring ways. And so, over time, parents can rely on shaming as a method of ensuring compliance from their children. And this can start an uh, introjection of the shaming voice, which we can carry around throughout life. We, uh, there was a wonderful psychologist, Vygotsky, who followed around two-year-old children, <laughs> not in a creepy way, just it was part of a research, and uh, observed, I should have said, observed two-year-olds and... Uh, the, the work he was doing, in, even in the 1930s in Russia, was to determine what was the origins of inner thought. And he found that inner thought develops by the child imitating the speech utterances of the parent. So the, the parent for, you know, the child's early years will go, don't eat the cookie, don't uh, hit your sister, don't pull the cat's tail. And then the child will start imitating those speech acts to itself. When the parent's not there, the child, to regulate its impulses, will start telling itself aloud, don't eat the cookie, don't hit your sister, don't pull the cat's tail. So Vygotsky established that speech, inner speech, our thought, starts out as uh, an internalization of the regulating statements that our parents give us. And given that even the most loving, caring parent uh, will generally convey happiness, pride, and love visually, but will rely on language as a way to uh, prohibit the child from taking dangerous actions, Generally, most of the speech acts that a parent will rely on will be essentially, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other thing. So many of our thoughts in our minds, those voices that we hear and assume to be ourselves, are actually the long-term results of hearing a parent figure saying, don't run across the street, don't run in the hallway, don't play on the stairway, don't do this. So we tend to rally around already the, the kind of thoughts that already can create excessive degrees of shame. 
Spiritual paths can be very shaming. There are spiritual paths that turn people's entirely natural sexual impulses and other natural impulses into sins for which we'll be judged. In societies, we can outlaw entirely natural, authentic, spontaneous behavior and criminalize it or um, uh, in, uh, make it seem as if people are uh, behaving in ways that are antisocial when in fact they're simply exhibiting purely authentic, spontaneous, uh, harmless behaviors. Uh, people who are born into uh, or are parts of LGBTQ communities and people of color are often, uh, as a result of the dominant cultures they live in, which portray uh, certain people as normative, for instance, white and straight as normative, they can feel a sense of shame for their uh, purely natural, authentic states. So, um, the gist of it is, is that while to a certain degree shame and guilt is a natural socializing uh, emotion, it's also something that can be hijacked by family, social, uh, peer groups, by religious groups, by all, all sorts of social um, forces that can hijack this natural tendency and can turn it into something that creates self-hatred, self-loathing, needless feelings of, uh, um, there's something wrong with me. The Buddha used a word, samwega, which meant uh, the feeling of a kind of discomfort with one's actions. And Samwega played a very important part in the Buddha's spiritual path. The Buddha, when he saw old age, sickness, and death, he became, as he said, disgusted. And then he became uncomfortable with his own revulsion at seeing death and sickness. And so he said that that Samwega, that revulsion with his own response, was integral to his spiritual journey. He had to feel a certain degree of discomfort with his actions. But the Buddha then goes on to say that whenever we turn revulsion at an act into a revulsion against ourself, our identity, um, then we've gone too far. So he's making the distinction between certain acts can be very unskillful, but turning those acts into an identity belief, a statement about our who we are, what our personality is, um, the Buddha believed was uh, not only harmful, but completely not necessary. So, for example, in our culture in the U.S., if somebody is convicted of a felony, they are tagged for the rest of their life as a felon, even after they serve their time or they 
meet community standards and they make reparations. So the crime, the action itself, might be uh, antisocial and might be even at times uh, deeply unpleasant. But the Buddha says to turn that, to turn specific events in a person's life and conflate it into an entire view about that person is the step that generally causes needless suffering. And we tend to do this to ourselves and to other people. We tend to, when we make mistakes, we act in ways that we, that don't sit well we tend to, as a way to try to make sense of it or to try to avoid doing it again, we tend to carry around the story of I am the person who does this or did that. And that creates uh, a uh, essentially isolating feeling of uniqueness that separates us from others and creates the false belief that there are other people out there that have not had their own uh, errors in judgment at times, and that we are somehow worse, uglier, less than, uh, in some way, deeply flawed. And so shaming, when it's not simply directed at a specific act that we regret and simply set an intention to not repeat, but when it turns into a story about ourselves is uh, it also becomes a way, in, a, in its own perverse way, it lets us off the hook from literally simply doing the, the work simply to set our intentions to not repeat it. If I tell myself the story that I'm a, uh, I'm a selfish person, it lets me off the hook from taking the effort to move in the opposite direction. So um, the other side of the coin is resentment. We carry around, of course, stories of harming and uh, uh, victimization. And part of the reason we do this is because the left hemisphere of the brain doesn't trust the fact that we won't be injured again unless we repeat the story again and again of how we've been mistreated in relationships and families and work in peer relationships and so So we keep repeating the story. Um, sadly, or perhaps ironically, it's an entirely unnecessary step because all human beings have sub-regions of the brain that are there to make sure that whenever we encounter somebody who's injured or harmed us, we have defensive reactions that set us into the fight, flight, or freeze mechanism that uh, essentially prime us to be more suspicious and guarded. So the stories that we carry around uh, about the, all the mistreatments that have happened are largely uh, very often needless. But even more so, um, as the Buddha suggests, they actually constantly cause ourselves harm. Uh, it's remarkable, having worked with people now for 20 years, how often I'll hear uh, people uh, talking about uh, or maintaining resentments 
that uh, they don't observe our entirely natural uh, human in relational events. Um, the Buddha called carrying around a resentment akin to holding a burning ember in our hand, waiting around to throw it at someone. And during that time we're holding it, it's simply burning us. Much of, in my experience, the time that people are carrying around resentments which isolate them and create uh, stories of lack of safety, um, we are uh, perpetuating not only uh, beliefs that we're not safe, but um, we don't see the amount of suffering and stress that it causes in our lives. Um, some of the beliefs that should be examined, uh, when we forgive, we're not letting someone off the hook if they've done something criminal or if they've done something, uh, if they've done something terrible. They still have to live with the karmic results of their actions. They still have to live in the mind of someone who's caused harm. So if there's been times of physical or sexual abuse, if there's been times of theft or any... Uh, of the sort of uh, violation of the precepts that, uh, that are the foundation for any spiritual practice, if we forgive uh, that person, it doesn't mean that they're off the hook by any means. The Buddha, in fact, it makes it very clear that forgiving someone, uh, they still have to live with the repercussions. I'm not powerful enough. Kathy's not powerful enough, nor are any of you powerful enough to let someone off the hook, even if you want to. Even if you want to forgive someone for, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, an act that was atrocious, you can't. They still have to live, and they still have to do the work to make the amends to undo the karmic damage by dedicating themselves to service. They still have to address any feelings of guilt and shame in their own experience. Or if they don't feel guilt or shame, they'll feel, without doubt, excessive rationalization. When we are incapable of feeling or holding our guilt or shame, what often happens is people rely on rationalization and self-justification to not feel self-discomfort, and so people will live in a mind that's just filled with obsessive, you know, uh, constant language justifying their actions, and that's not a comfortable state either. Um, forgiveness doesn't mean you have to let somebody back in your life. You can, in fact, forgive someone and also make the determination that they're not safe and that you're not going to see them again, that you're going to keep a distance from them. So what then is forgiveness is simply the determination to stop repeating a story over and over and over again in the mind, which 
as we said, is isolating, which uh, gets directly in the way of us being able to uh, vulnerably connect. If we keep telling the story of how we've been wrong, it's very difficult to drop our armoring, our suspicion of other people, our feelings of vulnerability, and open our hearts to others. Finally, um, when we live with constant resentments, it stops us from doing the emotional work. Resentments are very often a masking emotion that prevents us from actually getting in touch with the sadness and the disappointment that lies beneath it. Most of us find sadness and disappointment as very vulnerable states to feel, whereas resentment creates the illusion that we're doing something about it, that we're somehow protecting ourselves, that we're somehow less vulnerable. And so, so long as we stay repeating the story of, of how we've been mistreated, we feel not only less vulnerable, but we don't have to feel the, the sadness, the grief, the loss, the disappointment with other people that's lingering beneath, and these are very vulnerable feelings. They can feel like heartbreak. So part of the work with um, working through anger, resentment with other people is one, feeling the anger first in the body. We're not repressing anything. We're feeling the anger as a somatic experience, but we're not continuing the story. The body sensations versus the repeating the events of this person did this, and then they did that, and they should have done X, and they should have done Y. That story is what we simply note, and we allow it to be there, but we focus on first feeling the anger, and then feeling the sadness that's beneath the anger, and then, to the extent we can, we forgive the person knowing, one, that we've caused harm in our life at some point, and also, two, for the sake of our own spiritual growth, so that we can free up the mind to work on uh, more skillful endeavors, connecting, living from a less guarded place. So I'm going to lead you now through a very basic uh, forgiveness meditation. The first part will be for other, another. And the second will be for, um, for ourselves, and then for the harm we've caused, and then the second part will be for another. Uh, I urge you to, one, be patient and realize that this will not result in any huge relief the first time you do it. Forgiveness is a process. It takes a very long time. And uh, I urge you, too, not to start the forgiveness uh, exercise with someone who's uh, done something extremely violent or extremely harmful. Let's start with somebody that you're mildly irritated with. Uh, you have to work up to uh, family members we, we are we can't, we've been struggling with, or people who've done 
real, real uh, injurious acts. So closing the eyes and just finding a comfortable seated position, and this is one of those meditations where I really urge you to be as relaxed and comfortable in your body as you can. So don't, don't try to sit in a position that denotes uh, what you think you're supposed to sit in. Just find a really comfortable seat. And throughout this meditation, if you ever get physically uncomfortable, just quietly change the position so that uh, you feel... Because uh, the work here is not about the body. So, um, take a nice long in-breath, and if you like, lift the shoulders up towards the ears, holding it, and then relaxing it, the shoulders, releasing them. Take the second breath and pulling in the belly as tight as you can, holding and then releasing. And the final in-breath with tightening the toes, the fists, facial muscles, buttocks, legs, arms, and then release. taking a moment just to find the body, feeling all the sensations, feeling the sensations in the palm of the left hand and the fingers, feeling the palm of the right hand and the fingers, and Relaxing both and then spreading the ease up the left forearm, elbow, all the way up to the shoulder, and then doing the same with the right forearm, elbow, shoulder. Take a nice in-breath, and with the out-breath, spread the ease down the front of the body, slightly pulling the shoulders back to open up the chest, and making sure the belly is as soft and pliant as possible, and then down the legs. Taking a moment and breathing in through the eyes, not literally, but just see what it 
ask what it would feel like if you could breathe in through the eyes. And as you do that, softening the micro-muscles around the eyes and feeling as if the eyes themselves are two balls floating in warm water, just softening all around that area. And then as you breathe down, or release the breath, I should say, Exhaling, relaxing all the muscles down the body. Just getting as comfortable as you can. So bring to mind the image of someone that you associate with feelings of guilt or disappointment in your actions. And once again, don't bring to mind someone that's uh, too hot. Could be someone even here in New Life that you wished you had extended more time to, or a friend that you haven't returned a call, or find a good balance in terms of not too large a event in life to forgive, but not too small. Could be a relationship breakup with someone where there's some lingering feelings of guilt. So without (coughs) repeating the entire sequence of events, just have a sense of what it is we regret and just see how it feels in the body. Where do we hold guilt or shame? Not turning it into any view of self or who we are, just holding the feeling itself.
And then just very simply, with the person's face still held in your awareness, just find your own words to say in your mind, knowing that I have caused harm, I ask your forgiveness. May I be forgiven. (coughs) May I feel forgiven. May I be forgiven. Knowing I have caused harm, may I be forgiven. As all beings cause harm at times in life, and all beings deserve forgiveness. May I be forgiven. Bringing to mind the possibility that we deserve forgiveness. I ask your forgiveness. May I be forgiven. And then gently letting go of that image and bring to mind the image of yourself. And just bringing to mind one time where, amongst the times in life where we've caused ourselves harm, where we haven't taken care of ourselves, where we've been excessively harsh and judgmental of ourselves, where we've treated ourselves in ways that we would not treat a friend. And knowing that that too is part of the human experience. And then find your own words, seeing the pain I have caused myself, the harm, to the extent I can, may I forgive myself, may I forgive myself, may I forgive myself. Again, knowing that the underlying cause of harmfulness is stress and fear that we have never 
injured ourselves out of sheer malice as much as the fear that unless we treat ourselves harshly, we believe maybe that we would fall short. We were frightened of being rejected by others. Harmfulness is always rooted in suffering. No one causes harm when they are not suffering. To the degree that I can right now, I forgive myself. So let go of your image and bring to mind someone who has caused you harm. Someone who has treated you poorly, not seen you, not expressed care. a time you felt mistreated. Feeling first perhaps that sense of anger in the body or any sadness due to the disappointment or the rift that it may have caused in a friendship or relationship. Whatever needs to be felt at this time, give it some space. To the extent that I can right now, and for the sake of simply removing the story from my mind, given that I have forgiven myself for some of my own harmful acts towards others and towards self, to the extent that I can, may I forgive you. May I forgive you. May I forgive you. This doesn't mean that I will bring you back into my life. It's simply my gesture to remove repeating that story living in that perspective. May I forgive you.
So there's no shoulds about how this will feel. And in my experience, it's a very long process. But it's a worthy one still, in that both feelings of guilt and resentment can keep us feeling so isolated and cut off from care. And so I'm going to ring the bell.